This is Jan Cox, talk number 2528, recorded May 22nd, 2000. One for you. Kind of thing that when I say it, your mind is very tempted to say, well, that could not happen. It's not possible. And yet, it's one of these things that is possible, but your mind would be right that it's never going to happen. But. What if there's no such things, no such thing as a fatal illness? Now, certainly people die. You finally wear out, everything dies. Trees, rocks die. It just, it's such a slow death, it's hard to tell. But. <laughs> what if there's no such thing as fatal illness? And I know how it came about. If my supposition, if this could happen. It's the doing of medicine, and it was for good reason. See, up until 100 plus years ago, they couldn't do surgery. And I assume everyone knows uh, they were doing autopsies. That took them a long time to get around to that, and so they were learning about anatomy. But there's a difference between a dead body and a live body. And it was only up until they were able developed general anesthesia that they could actually perform surgery on a person without the shot killing them. You just couldn't do it. And so, although they could cut open dead bodies and look around, so there's a stomach and there's a you know, small intestines and etc. It was only in the late 1800s that they developed and could use anesthesia so they could put people under and do major surgery and the person survive. What if there was never has been any such thing as a fatal illness. And medicine, with good intentions, wanted to learn. And so they came up with the whole idea, like cancer. Nobody ever heard of cancer until anesthesia. And so they came up with the idea, well, you know, certainly you can get lumps. You get hit your head and you get a lump and it can abscess and all that. But anyway, that or Grover's syndrome. The whole idea they came up with, doctors... You know, they had to pass around. They, somebody developed this. There was a group of them might maybe got together, and it took them a while. So they started telling people, select people. Maybe each doctor got to tell one person once a year, one of his patients, that they had a fatal illness and that they were going to have to do major surgery, get down in the abdominal cavity. And, you know, without this, you will die, is the point. And we can't promise the surgery, but you will certainly die if we do not do surgery. And so, assuming they picked out somebody who appeared to be reasonable in an ordinary, in an ordinary sense, the person will say, well, certainly, Jesus, if I'm dying, let's give it a try. Thus, they could cut him open, or her, and do anything they wanted to. You know, muck around in there and, you know, how does this work? And, you know, I've never seen one of these actually in action. Do almost anything. Cut out parts of a person and say, well, what happened if you cut out half of the small intestine? What would happen? And maybe there's a couple of surgeons in there. I assume that they would get two or three together once they pull this on somebody. He'd call in some of his associates. And they'd go, I don't know. I've never read. No one's tried that. And so for the sake of medical progress, they would go, okay. And they'd cut out. Maybe they'd measure. Now, I don't know what tape measure. They would measure. Well, let's cut out. Let's, this guy will cut one-fourth of his small intestines and see what happens. And so they would do that. And then you would wake up and you go, what happened? They go, well, you know, we got it perhaps in time. 
at least you, know, you would have died without it. And so let's see what happens. And then, of course, they bring him back and they keep asking, you know, how do you feel? And they act sort of nonchalant. How's it going? <laughs> but then taking notes about what happens if you cut out one half of man's intestine. Or what happens if you cut off, you know, take out one kidney. What happens if you cut off half his stomach? Just take it out. And so the point is, no one complains because they told you beforehand that you had a fatal illness that the only possibility, the only possibility was this major surgery. And therefore, when you woke up, if you were alive, you had no complaint. You were just thankful to be alive. And then, in other words, you were being used as guinea pig. All right. As soon as that hit me, like everything else that hits me that's of any interest to me personally, I immediately had the metaphorical side of it also. Think about trying to awaken and that you're performing exploratory surgery on yourself and you don't really realize it. Like, well, let's see what this will do. If I keep trying this, I will I walk funny? When I, if I ever do wake up, if I come out of this general anesthesia known as trying to awaken, you know, will I still be able to digest food? <laughs> or can I do long multiplication according to one theory? <laughs> Okay. When he was asked about his place of residency, one man replied, I presently live just a little north of my thalamus, but I'm planning to move. This being a Monday, start of a new week, start of a new month, start of a new year, could be the start, why not, of a whole new sense of reality in yourself. Because I have a new model. It's harder to talk about than my past models on the basis that, uh, as you'll see, it's having to do with feeling, which is, uh, well, by everyone, by mystics and by ordinary people's consensus of opinion, uh, it is extremely tricky to try and talk about, and so. At first, I was just going to spring it on you and just start talking. But I did write out a few pages, and as you'll see, I don't think that you'll get any sense that there's any order to this. But it will introduce you, and then I'll get going today or next time, full blast. Or what I really want, of course, is for you to get going with it. So here it is. I just put in lumps on pages, paragraphs, as I said, that may not appear to go in any particular order because of... <laughs> None of you still believe there's a particular order or anything, do you? Well, yes, there is. Well, that's what I number. There's page one. The next one is, yep, page two. So, don't tell me there's no order to anything. But you're supposed to say, yeah, but you've damn made the order. You know what typed? You said that was page one, that was page two. Well, it may be, but it still says it. Now, don't be busting my chops over this. It says page one, and then it's page two, and then page 2.5. I don't know why. And then page three, of course, I do know why, but I don't go into it. <laughs> page four, well, of course, I'll tell you. I used up all my whiteout. <laughs> I only use a pint a week. <laughs> all right, here it is. It's labeled Special 522-2000, page one. Heading, New Model. What men call thoughts do not exist as actual things, as do, for instance, hunger pangs, cold chills, 
sexual arousal, territorial aggression, but they are rather measurements of and reflections of feelings. Not their own things. Consciousness could be compared to uh, tachometer and thoughts be the RPMs of an engine which it measures and displays. But note the readings of RPMs exist solely by virtue of the work of the engine. Compared to the engine's physical activity, the tachometer's readings do not exist. The RPMs, that is, thoughts, are simply invented methods to measure the activity of the engine. Feelings. And by the way, I am going to just use feelings, passion, emotion synonymously. I know I have, any of you who remember I have in the past when I spoke about emotions, I've usually specified for my own purposes a difference between emotions and feelings. But herein, for this model, it's shifted. The paradigm is not the same. It's not simply a new overlay. It is, at root, different. And so, in this case, just according to the sentence from me talking, uh, sometimes passion may seem to me more appropriate. No, no mystical reason. It just sounds more appropriate as I was writing this and realized once I start talking. So if I say emotion, passion, or feeling, I mean the same thing. Instead of, as I have often done, referring to certain types, so-called intellectuals usually, as being thought-oriented, you could, according to this method, better describe them as less feeling-driven. Upon hearing someone say something that they find totally unacceptable, it is common for men to say regarding the speaker, quote, what was he thinking? When the better put question would be, what was he feeling? For whatever it was the speaker said that was capable of triggering passion in a listener was also something that was passionate to the speaker. Although it may not have been so at such at the moment he said it. And I'll, I'll go into this because I think you'll find it, you can find it useful because everyone does it. But what I had in mind there since I already read that part of the sentence. Someone can say something, this is very common. The speaker will make some comment. Uh, maybe a politician, and he is attacking a neighboring country or tribe, and he makes some, you know, very prejudicial comment, some kind of joke, maybe that's common, but just some kind of attack on, as, our, as we all know, our neighbors, you know, eat their children and believe in false gods and, you know, don't wash their underwear. Just something real insulting. And at the moment, he may lack particular passion about it. But if he... If it's something that was stirred passion in you, if you heard it and you thought, well, the guy's an idiot. Why would he say that? There's no reason for that. It's illogical. But there's no basis for it. There was some basis for it. At one time, there was some basis for it in feeling with the speaker. And since I use politics in a neighboring nation, it would be that in the past, either that nation has been a territorial threat or any outside family anything outside your own immediate family, anything outside your wolf pack is always a potentially a territorial threat. And so even when someone is making real prejudicial statements about some other group of people, some nationality, some you know, religion, or just like I said, just you know, Turks about Greeks, just a neighboring, 
And if they say something, just an extremely biased remark, an insulting remark, and if you hear it and you go, well, my God, what, what would somebody be thinking to say that? It's uncalled for. There's no such thing as an uncalled for thought. Whatever thought is, it is a reflection of feeling. The feeling that's triggered, that gave birth originally to that particular thought, may not be present at the moment the speaker's saying it. And it doesn't have to be a public politician. It could be you. Or it could be you listening to someone else make a comment, and it may trigger in you some remark, that is, some thought to yourself about somebody. Well, such as this. You may be criticizing the speaker. And the truth is, at that moment, you don't really care. And yet your automatic thinking, when you heard somebody make, when someone said, blah, 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 and you think, oh, Jesus, are you an idiot? There was some basis for that somewhere in feeling. Well, sooner or later, I'll get back around to that, but since I read part of that sentence, I wanted to let you know what I was had in mind generally. Uh, well, I even made some, from this view, prejudicial, aggressive thoughts, that is, words directed at others, when there appears to be no, quote, rational basis, therefore, therefore, can be an unrecognized exercise of feelings staying in shape and prepared for potential defensive actions in the future. That is, the politician attacks, you know, our neighbors, we all know that they're untrustworthy, and you know, we've got to stay, you know, always ready to go. In fact, we might should attack, you know, I'll let you know later, we may should attack them now. And you could be listening and think, well, they haven't done anything to us. Maybe they haven't done anything in our lifetime. Or anyway, you think, why does he always do that? From one view, quite real view, it is his and probably the collective feelings or emotions of your tribe, your country, your group staying in shape to defend themselves because they know if the neighbor that he's attacking verbally has not transgressed, transpassed on your territory in the past, there's always the potential they will. Everybody knows that because there's a potential that you will. Your leader was saying, maybe we should attack. I've been considering. Some of my generals say we should have a preemptive attack. In other words, we should go take part of their territory, which may not strike you as that uncalled for. Like, well, you know, maybe. But just his verbal assault on them, you may, your thoughts may be triggered along the lines about what was he thinking to say that when thinking was not the basis of it. Thus, negative daydreams. When I, I'm starting, by the way, now I'm starting to get into some of these just examples of sorts of things. Negative daydreams. Uh, you know how often I've spoken about critical negative thinking about other people that there's absolutely no basis for it which is not even the point but it, what it will do is keep you absolutely distracted it will keep you from ever realizing as I normally say it what's going on in the mind but if you look past thoughts and take the model I'm presenting now that thoughts are simply like measurements they're gauges they're reflections of feelings they may be, at any particular moment, they may be direct measurements or they may be indirect. Like I said of someone saying, uh, cursing a neighboring tribe. Cursing them not on the basis of anything that they're doing right now, but on the basis that they have done us harm in the past. And since we know ourselves, we know humans, we know there's a possibility they will in the future. And so by continuing to stir up bad news and threats and doing uh, sword rattling about your neighbor, from one view, 
It is feelings, it is the emotions of territorial defenses staying in shape. They're pumping iron by continuing to badmouth their neighbor. Without having to resort to physical, to actual behavior, feelings can stay in shape without behaving. That is, without going in action. More about that coming up. Stay tuned. All right. Another thing, men's love of gossip and bad news can be seen as a teaching tool, as men's emotions attempting to learn from the missteps and tragedies of others. Well, you know how foolish I can make it sound or try to or pass off gossip and bad news. I've, at least once a year, it seems, I'll bring up for a night or so, or at least bring up in passing, the question to you of why. Why is bad news, which includes history, so it's not, it's not just the National Enquirer. It's the world in the world of academia. It's history. It's almost nothing but bad news. Why? And I can make it sound as though, not just me, but there's been plenty of mention of it within the mystical systems, not to mention religion, but mystical systems about negative thinking, critical thinking, judgmental thinking of others. Listening to bad news about others, listening to criticism of others will do nothing but cloud your own consciousness and keep you asleep, blah, blah. That it's just a waste of time, it's foolishness, and it's you'll be seen for the evil that it is. Okay. But I can see it by this model, and you should be able to also, that you could see the brain. You could see your total organism, but you could see consciousness attempting to use gossip. To listening to gossip, somebody say, you know what happened to so-and-so? You remember her that used to live here in our village, yeah? You know, she left and married that guy in that tr neighboring village, neighboring tribe. And you go, yeah, let me tell you what happened to her. And from one view, you say, Jesus, who wants to hear that shit? Yeah. It's just people wallowing in bad news. There's another way to look at that. It is consciousness attempting to use bad news and gossip, which all gossip, of course, is bad news, as a teaching tool. That to listen to what terrible things have happened to other people or what stupid things they've done is I won't do that. I'll remember that. Not necessarily that this always comes to pass, but it can certainly be seen. Before this is over, why I'm going to, if I don't point it out, I'll do it now. You can see all of the manifestations of sleep. I'll tell you this now. In case it takes me a few minutes or a few days to get around to it, if you want to play with it yourself. You can see every manifestation of sleep, according to me, according to you, according to Buddha, according to everybody. All of the negative manifestations of what being asleep, being deluded, being distracted, take each and every one of them, and I can see it, I can show it to you, I think, if you'll look according to this model. They can be seen as a positive. It is you. It is consciousness. Being driven by feeling, which is what we must have to stay alive. You can live without thought, but you can't live without emotion, without feeling. It can be seen as feeling, all these manifestations of sleep, it can be seen as feelings attempt at learning. Does that sound foolish? I hope so. I just made it up. I, I just thought to put it that way. Does that sound like that can't be true? Stay tuned. You know if I say it can be true if you listen to me and my hypnotic speech. I'll make you think, yeah, it is true. And then you walk out and go, my God, he did it again. 
Are you nuts? Jesus. Page two. Further note from perspective of this model. Daydreaming. The totally uncontrolled flow of apparently random and meaningless thoughts through your mind. In fact, the very thing against which the great struggle to awaken is waged. Daydreaming is constant, common to, and enjoyed by all men. You can't say that you don't enjoy it. Now, you can say that there are times you don't enjoy it. It's when you catch yourself, as generally thought of, that I find myself asleep. Ah, there I am again. But you aren't going, ah, there I am again, when you're in the midst of it. And when you come out of it, you will certainly say, everybody will. We will all say, God, I hate that. That's the very thing I'm struggling against. But notice this. I keep bringing it up, but now maybe you'll, you'll get a better view of it if you haven't had one or a reasonable view. When you are in it, you enjoy it. What else are you going to call it? You can say, well, I don't enjoy it all the time. Yeah, I know. You don't enjoy it when you stop and think, I don't enjoy what I just did. But when you were just didn't it, did you enjoy it? Of course, the best you can say is, well... <laughs> I wasn't saying I didn't enjoy it, was I? No, you weren't. It is common and it is constant to all men. And note more specific than that. Men only daydream about matters and events about which they have feelings. Thus, in truth, daydreams are not actually random or meaningless. But rather, they come to mind, then connect to other dreams via associations of feelings. Now, even I, you know how constant, if you paid attention, that I use the modifiers, that random, meaningless thought. Just rolls on and on, just one thing triggers another. And you can certainly, people have tried this, even authors. Our good friend, what's his Irish nut name? Has tried to you know, follow the psychological connections. The guy's daydreaming throughout the day. And people have tried this. And you can, like everything else, the mind can make sense of anything. The mind can find a pattern and say there's a pattern. And if one man's mind said there's a pattern, then to him, that's a pattern. You can say, no, it's not. He can say, yes, it is. You're blind. You don't see it. Of course, many people probably will see it. But even I point out, I say random and meaningless. Now, certainly when you notice your thoughts, at times one will trigger another. But... If I ask you, where did it start? All you remember is, uh, you know, I looked around and a red car went by to look like an old soda. And I thought, Jesus, that reminds me of my Uncle Bill. And then you remember the first time you got drunk that he gave you booze. And then you remember how your mother had such a fit. And then it just goes somewhere else. And if right then I could jump in your mind and say, well, are those random? And you go, oh, well, now the red car made me think of my Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill, maybe the first time I was drunk and then my mother upset. And I go, yeah, but what made you think of the red car? You know, what was going on before that? The point is, all you can do is isolate one little section. And you can find a pattern. You can impose a pattern and say one thing led to another. But they truly appear to be random. They may appear to be little random collections of data, recollections of events, people. But they do truly appear to be random because you cannot predict. They just happen. But I say this. I say they're not random if you look beyond thought and use, use the model that thoughts are nothing but, nothing but, with one exception I'll get to, 
But the thoughts, just the, the thing against which all mystics struggle, whatever they call it, this random, meaningless, out of control flow of thought that is wont to eat up all of your consciousness. To take all of the attention you have available mentally for life and to use it up in nothing. In wearisome, tiresome activity. When you catch it, the rest of the time you enjoy it. I assume that you're my kind of person to yourself. You're still mumbling. No, I don't. I heard what you said, but I don't anyway, regardless of the fact. So that's the way you do it, regardless of the fact. You got to. Well, you don't have to, but I, I had to say you have to. So you don't go down that road, do you? Well, you get headaches too easy. So I go. <laughs> At any rate, they're not random because of this. All this I will get back to eventually in some more detail, I'm sure. But they are not random and they're not meaningless on this basis that if you use the model of seeing or trying to see, because it is true, whether you see it right now or not, that everything you think of any note. Now, we all have thoughts go through our head that something will trigger it. It's just a moment and you can't even think what it was. You couldn't remember for the life of you. But anything that you could remember right after you thought it. So I'll call that notable. That it made an impression, ephemeral as it may be, it was an impression sufficient that if right then you did remember to try and be more alert, you could remember what it was you were just thinking, the thoughts that were in your head. That's notable. If they're notable, they're not random. But you can't prove that. You can't see it if you look simply on the surface, if you simply look at them as thoughts, because I'm proposed to you this, by this model, that anything you think, any thoughts you have, I should say, that pass through you that are notable, which is most of the daydreams, that if you stopped, you can catch them at the moment, that they were notable enough that you know what thoughts were going through you. If they were notable, you had some feeling about them at least at the time the event that you're thinking about happened, or you would not be able to recall it. It would not be that imprinted in your memory. So you had some feeling about it. You do not have a memory of things that you had no emotion about. Now, that can vary, obviously, from very weak emotion. But if you were totally indifferent, if there is such a thing, and there almost is, that you were there around circumstance, we're not talking about physiological at least speaking, by the way, because you can be affected. I point this out somewhere in here. But you can be apparently affected, your feelings, by what's going on outside of you, which would be a change in circumstance or circumstances, or you're affected internally by your own physiology, which is humorous to say they're different. But I'll get into that. Whatever happened that you recall, it was something that happened in circumstance. That is something, it was an event. It was not an occurrence in you physiologically. It was an event that you remember. The red car reminds you of your uncle. Your uncle happened to you outside of you. Your uncle was not heartburn. Your uncle was not a full bladder. Your uncle is something outside of you. So the red car, he's out, you understand, it was circumstances. Whatever it was, it was something in circumstances 
that made you remember it. So you had some feeling about it. Of course, I didn't mean to gain this, but that's not absolutely true because getting drunk was physiological, and you remember that. Because what you remember is how bad I felt later. But then probably what you really remember is my mother came in. I wasn't but 14, and she came in the next day, and there I was. I'd thrown up all over the bed, and I was laying on the floor, and she went, God Almighty, your uncle got you drunk. That's what you really, because she gave you, she was on your case for two weeks. But you remember being sick, which is physiological. But what you, anyway, anything you remember, you had feeling about. If something happens to you, which things happen throughout the day, in a sense, that will catch your attention, just little things, that you will never remember. Just never remember. Because you had no feeling about them. You saw it happen. You might have been right up close. You saw it happen, but it just, you had no feeling about it. There's no sense going into beating that to death. But they, it's going on all the time, things that you never recall because you had no feeling about it. You simply did not care. You were not interested. Call it anything you want to. So, I propose, based on this model, the thoughts that just automatically run through all of us constantly. At one time, they initially were put in memory, printed in memory, because you had some passion. You had some preference. You had some feeling about it. To discount daydreams as being absolutely useless, I could say from this model, is not true. I've already sort of given you a hint, but you, one way to look at it, one way that, based on this model, it's true. That the daydreaming is consciousness and feelings, pumping iron, staying in shape ready to go in case this comes back again. If something similar to this ever occurs again, I'm ready for it. Well, it's like the old idea of, I assume you've heard, but you know, the way to, wherever it came from, is walking through a graveyard. Somebody told a kid that the way he was so frightened he, wouldn't, he would never come home from church or whenever it was from his grandma's and he'd go way out of his way because he was afraid at night to walk to a graveyard. And his mother or somebody said, here's all you have to do. Is, you know, all the way to the graveyard, you just keep saying to yourself, there are no ghosts, there are no ghosts, there are no ghosts. Finally ended up, I went going to try to drag the fable out, just whistling in the dark. As you keep doing something to reinforce what you're wanting to believe. An aspect of that, if you're following, is daydreaming about something happened. Just over and over and over, you can say, well, it's driving me crazy. It's a waste of time. That may be driving you crazy if you're my kind of mystic, figuratively speaking. But to say it's useless, it can't be useless. I don't know how anybody, I'm not saying it's not true, but I don't know how anyone can say that anything that's going on in the universe is useless. If you can say that, and, and if I ask you, do you know that to be a fact? And you say, yeah, then uh, I guess I should be studying with you. You understand? I'm being sarcastic. It's not possible for anyone to know what is useless and what's not useless in this universe. There's no way to know. The obvious, if I may say so, from any use of the mind, the obvious answer is whatever's going on must be useful 
I may not be able to realize it, but it must be useful. Why else would life do it? But it could be something that it discards. You could say that evidently life found dinosaurs not to be useful. That it kept trying, playing around, changed them, shortened them, fattened them. Find a side to hell with it. You could look at daydreams as being a trying out, a retrying out of something at one time affected you, that you had some feeling about, and that you keep daydreaming about it, and now the feeling's no longer there. Therefore, it has no taste. Ordinary people, they don't even, as we've been through, they seem to have no complaint with the whole matter. It's just part of being alive. It's only when you notice it and you're wired up to be one of the people like me, like us. It's only then that you go, yeah. And the repetition of it, the meaninglessness of it. But I say to you that it is not meaningless. And it's the repetition, truly, is serving a purpose based on this model. It is you staying prepared. You're your own National Guard. You're your own Marine Corps. On guard, on duty, always alert. Even when there's no threat of war, or even when there's no war going on, there's always the threat. That always frightens those of the military that if you don't watch it, peace could break out. You have to stay alert. Nobody wants to follow that metaphor about how would that work in trying to awaken that I'm a great warrior fighting the battle against sleep. <laughs> Wouldn't it be horrible if one day you woke up and suddenly peace had broke out? I mean, what's more useless than a warrior dragging around his rifle, his sword, his shield, and no one to fight? It's a pitiful sight. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. There is, of course, a worse sight. That's somebody that's attacked and does not have a shield. Or, in case you don't like that metaphor, take your own. What a man daydreams about pleases him emotionally, either by their making him feel angry or causing him to feel joy. And I say that no matter which it is, even that which would apparently from one view have no meaning. Why, why do I keep having daydreams when I have thoughts that depress me? Well, there is certainly a way. I'm not trying to get into so-called clinical, the definition of clinical depression, but being sad and depressed. Uh, you know, crying. Uh, to see people cry. To see people go nearly hysterical over a tragedy. From one view, since we're all wired up slightly different in our feelings and everything else, from one view, you can think, well, Jesus, that's overdoing it. I mean, people, they're torturing themselves. Sure, their you know, mother died or whoever it was, but my God, they're, they're throwing themselves in the ground. It's been going on for two days. And the poor man, he's pulling his hair out. He's screaming. He has not stopped screaming and crying for the last 72 hours. And you could say, well, that's, that's sick. That's pathological. There's no need for that. I propose to you that's very similar to the enjoyment of gossip, except in this case it's kind of internal gossip. Mm -hmm. It's a monitoring of your own feelings 
And it's like preparation. It's like exercising in a gym for what worse could happen, how you might handle it in the future. And you could also see that I've suffered enough by crying like this, by suffering like this. Whereas if you didn't do it with certain people, can anybody go with it? Was off to the side. To someone who is not, uh, you could say the whole world, one of these tricks. You could say the whole world is divided into people who easily display their feelings and those who do not. Right, from, from the view of those who do not, those who display their feelings appear to be silly. Or they make them ill at ease. Or they feel as though they're weak. Well, women are always accusing men. It's not strictly a gender thing, but I do see, obviously, it does come into play without any doubt. But, you know, women, that's their common complaint nowadays, once men psychologists got them going, a complaint that men are not emotional enough. And, of course, as you should know, to men, generally speaking, if they're accused, to them, women are too emotional. You can see, back to my division, just people who display easily their emotions and those who do not. Those who do not easily display them. Look at those who do as being either weak, ill-informed, misguided. But from one view, you could see, I'm not saying it's always the case individually, but you could see that an overt, a public display of emotions can be the physiological monitoring of oneself. Have I gone far enough? As opposed to, I hate to get into psychological jargon, but I don't waste all night on this one thing. It's known as bottling up your emotions. That it won't do you any good, that if you're really feeling that angry or that sad about something, it's going to come out one way or the other. Of course, as via modern-day Western psychological tenets, it can make you sick and et cetera. That's not even the point I'm making. The point I'm making is at least I'll go as far as they surmise that if you really feel something, it will come out. If you truly can stop feeling, uh, it is pathological because you're not doing yourself any good. We only feel to survive. And just because from one person's view, the feelings you're displaying, I, I think, are ill-founded, ill-conceived. That could be your opinion, but you could be full of shit. Which is to say, you simply don't feel the way that person's feeling. You're wired up to feel in a different way, and their expression of the feelings is pathologically healthy. And uh, physiologically healthy. <sighs> Let me see if I can finish the reading. Feelings reflected in consciousness as thoughts can also be seen as aids to survival. Consider, for instance, that we hate to catch ourselves engaged in some small stupid behavior, like misplacing your keys. Because our awareness thereof can serve as a caution to us of much greater danger should we be so inattentive in situations of greater consequence. Ordinary people certainly can be momentarily annoyed by small lapses of carelessness. This also gives a new view what I'm getting into. I don't even have to read it. Well, again, I speak for me, and I leave it to you to assume whatever burden is appropriate to you, to despise. As I said, I don't mind the world coming to the end. I don't mind dying. I wouldn't mind it if I lost, if I had fame and fortune. I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind if I... I don't know anything that I particularly would mind that could happen to me in life. Except 
Can you believe this shit? I was late already. Walked right out the door. Reached around to lock the door. I left my fucking keys in there on the counter when I was thinking I was late. I was standing there looking at the clock. I remember going, Jesus, am I late? It's a good thing that, you know, I know how to handle these tense situations. So run, 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 right at the door, pull the door, reach for the key, you know, to lock. And I'm looking at my damn empty hand. Now, that's what I despise. I don't mind the damn world coming to an end. I don't mind dying. I can even stand having Grover syndrome since I made it up. I assume I can bear it. That's what I hate. But it can be seen without any doubt as an aid to survival. Because even ordinary people don't like it. They don't make this kind of big deal and have their whole life now centered around, I've got to get to the point that I don't ever do that. I mean, no wonder they think we're crazy. And no wonder you shouldn't tell people what you're doing. <laughs> it's a stamp collector's club. <laughs> but at any rate, it bothers them. It bothers, it just does. People, you know they don't like that. As soon as they, they don't make a big deal, but as soon as they got there and reached their pocket to lock the door, they go down. So that's it. If you did suddenly pop out and go, that's really annoying, isn't it? They go, yeah. I go, that kind of makes you feel like a millimeter tall. They go, yeah. I mean, here it is. You're college educated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I feel like El Stupido. It's horrible, yeah. But then they forget it because it goes on all the time. I say, and I assume you people know, I didn't just come up with this model out of nowhere just to be entertaining because I have found it of great use. And it's getting closer to the reality of things than to be dealing with thoughts in the mind. But at any rate, the very things that we call being asleep, the very things against which real mystics believe that they're struggling, the very manifestations, prime examples of being asleep, being distracted, just being stupid, being mystically stupid, being metaphysically asleep. Dogs bump into things. Lions trip while running after dinner. Baboons hand flowers and attempt to caress another baboon before he realizes another male. There's some horrible mistakes happening in life. It's a good thing they don't have keys. I'm sure even elephants would sometimes forget where they left their keys. That's just my opinion. I can't prove it. But they can all be seen, especially in humans, because that is the one of the purposes you can't deny. I mean, as far as a verbal attempt is giving the purpose for consciousness or the brain developing the cortex to the point that we call consciousness, being able to deal abstractly with the physical world without actually having your hands on the world, which is what makes the mind, as we call it, makes consciousness such a survival-enhancing tool. For this to continually go on as a constant reminder, it's like an aid. Don't do that. Be more attentive. Because what it shows, especially, I say to people like us, but at any rate, to everybody, what it, I'm saying that it should be seen as is a survival tool, an aid to survival. Because look how stupid, look how inconvenient it is. But just look how annoying. You just don't like it to forget to pick up your keys. And all it was, if you ask somebody, why did you do it? And they say, well, I, you know, my mind was somewhere else. I was already late and I was worried about the boss being mad at me and 
I mean, I laid the keys there. And then I, tur- I turned off the coffee pot, and I laid the keys right there in front of the coffee pot, laid it off, looked up the clock to see how much more time I had. Now, I knew I laid the keys there because I had my briefcase in my other hand. I had the keys in my right hand. I was standing there at the cabinet. I looked down, and I didn't forget to turn off the coffee pot. I thought, because I remember I was thinking, Jesus, I hope I don't run off and leave the coffee pot on. And that's dangerous. So I was standing there, and I laid the keys down. I knew I did to turn off the coffee pot. And then I don't know. I was, my mind just drifted. I was worried about being late. I became careless. I became inattentive. I became mindlessness. I did not remember myself, as we would say. I did not observe myself. I was not mindful, as some of the Buddhist sects would have it. But it can be seen as being an, an aid to survival. That it is supposed to be reminding you. It's supposed to bring to your attention this. Now, of course, I'm putting words on it is look how annoying, to say the least. And, of course, it could have more adverse effects than that. Of leaving, what if you really forgot where you left your keys? What if you really got carried away and they slipped out of your hand, the bathroom fell down the clothes hamper? Mm. And now here it is, you're later and later, and the boss said, this is the last time you can be late. And you're out of your mind. And you know that they were in your hand. You know that one time they were in your hand because... You, you remember, when you put on your pants, you picked up the keys... So you knew when you're in the bedroom, they're in your hand, and where would you go? You can't remember. Your mind was so you, did I go to the bathroom? Well, yeah, but how about I didn't throw them in the toilet? Of course, then you might think, did I? <laughs> but anyway, you don't know what happened because you were not in control of your mind. But I'm saying that there is something else going on deeper than that. And I'm saying by simply attacking that, by considering it to be absolutely useless, by this model... You could be missing something quite practical. I'm not evidently looking at the clock. I'm not going to get around to it tonight, but give you two nights to figure out yourself all this stuff I'm saying. How could this be practical? Because it is. I wouldn't bring it up. I found great practical use, constant use. Plus, I have a wrap-up method that goes along with this. At one time to myself, I'll give you a hint. I called it the contrary method. But I may change that. I may change it to the whoopee method. We'll see. But anyway, you could see these minor things that you do. That you, What I want you to do, what I'm trying to make with us, even though ordinary people find it annoying. We find it. Mystics, if you're my kind of mystic, throughout the ages, of course, I forgot something apparently silly or of minor detail like misplacing your keys. And I'm sure most of the serious dilettante or would-be mystics on the planet right now, they would sort of giggle at that too, like, I get serious. You know, you're just being silly. Because to them, there are serious consequences to being asleep. I don't know whether I'd embarrass them enough, like, well, name one. And if you don't, if you don't find misplacing your keys one, tell me what would be. Of course, I'm sure they, what would they come up with? Well, forgetting to be charitable to your fellow man, forgetting... Forgetting that other humans are starving as you're sitting there eating. By the way, which sounds nice. It sounded nice for 5,000 years to certain people. But if you get to the feeling root of it, nobody, nobody, when they're eating, when they're hungry and they're eating, no one has feelings of any concern. Now, they could for their family, especially, apparently, mothers for children. But perhaps for your immediate family, you might have some concern. 
But no one's stomach gives any rat's ass whether the rest of the world is starving or not. That's simply the way it is. That's the way it is at the feeling level. I'm not saying that's the way it's supposed to be because that is not the way that humans now think it's supposed to be. But it's at the level that thoughts are now reflections, monitoring our feelings. And they come out in a different context. Well, I'll never get through with even reading this tonight. That's a good place as any day, isn't it? For the night. Uh, well, I tried to hint around. Well, I've said fairly straightforward, given my view of certain things in the past having to do with feelings. That's why, if you recall, I used to. I was trying to point out when I was talking about the mind that that was the object. And if I would mention emotions, I would normally say that there was a difference between feeling emotion that I was calling feeling or human emotion and the passions of the body, that it had to be a combination of thought and feeling, that you couldn't have negative emotions about other people, that you couldn't have negative daydreams unless you were thinking about it. And that's true and it's not true. And I just never tried to drag everyone's attention down to the fact that what I'm getting into has come up next time, I might as well point it out. Based on this model, what I was saying or going to get to is give up the idea, which I was trying to give my own lesson tonight before I pointed out, is to abandon the study of the mind. Although it's always been said, and even I repeat, that the awakening is an understanding of the mind. Right, well, I'm, this model, what I'm going to take it to, I guess, next time, is never mind all that. That that's not correct. That's the child version. That's the kitty form of it. That to be enlightened is to understand the fuel, the reality behind any thought you have. Behind what thinking is, which is feeling. Now, I repeat, well, may, let me point this out. And I'll leave it so give you something to think about. I was going to point out, I'd already written in here, something I've mentioned in another context or in different words. Uh, you can look at, I'm saying that all thought is fueled entirely by feeling. There's no such thing as a thought from nowhere. And, there, and there's some feeling. It was only the last time I was still writing, if you recall, or I mentioned it last time we were meeting, that the real problem was not just thinking, it was emotional thinking. And that has been the clarion cry, one way or the other, of all mystical systems, that a man is not awake unless he has an, not only a knowledge of his mind, but the way to get there, a knowledge of the nature of the mind, is to struggle to have an unprejudiced mind. That is, a mind with no preferences, a mind that does not pick and choose. And it sounds right. That yes, because if my mind wasn't always involved with yeah, 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 or meh, 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 you know, that kind of shit, maybe, that, maybe I'd be free from those thoughts. What I'm saying is, that's all the only thoughts you have. You wouldn't be free from those thoughts. That's all thoughts are. You're simply looking at a tachometer. You're looking at a gauge on a furnace, on an air conditioner, whatever you like. That's all from one model, based upon reality, based upon your, your own observation. All thoughts are, with one exception, all thoughts are is this gauge bouncing around showing 
and in a way that's not necessarily a direct reflection of what's going on right then, but all they're doing is measuring, monitoring, showing, displaying the reality and activity of feelings. The only example, the only exception I was going to give is when it is specific, when it is willfully directed toward a specific problem. which is the conscious, the mind, being able to take a, and it's always a physical problem. Well, I, I can think of no exception. When you're engaged in the willful pursuit, even if it was mathematical, someone, if they were trying to figure out its origin somewhere, was to solve a physical problem. And any physical problem or physical challenge is always for the basis of survival enhancement. Always. And so no matter what somebody is working on, if there is a willful use of the mind on a problem that has a physical origin, the other use of thought is not daydream, is when you're willfully doing that so that the mind can handle a physical problem abstractly and deal with it, perhaps solve it, without your hands being on it. That's it. Does somebody can sit around and figure out how, just in their head, figuring out how you could tell the height of a tree across a river before they was any geometry. That they could figure out in their mind the thumb of life, that tree and the shadows over here, and I knew that a tree here was in my mind. Or somebody figuring out how can I get water here in this river? We need it up here on higher ground over here in the fields because we're starving. And the water's right here, but below the water, below the river, the ground is untillable. There is no soil there. How do I get from there to here? Now, what I'm saying is the one exception to simply feeling, uh, that is, thoughts are none but monitors, reflections of feeling, is when you've got a problem, a physical problem, and it's always, as I said, it can be always traced to something related to survival. That the one use of the mind that is not daydreaming and that is not simply a reflection of your feeling, of your passion, and even then it is, if you follow, but at any rate, it's for a man to sit there and be able to use the mind, which you can do, and without putting his hands on anything. Sometimes people do, you know, f fool around with it. But that is the benefit, that is the efficiency of the mind, is without getting out there and physically trying this and that and this and that, that a man can sit if he's wired up. Anyway, a man can sit and look at the water, think of everything he's ever experienced and seen, and in his mind, without putting his hands, without, he can invent a water wheel. He can invent in his mind how to make a pump, how to make the water push itself uphill, how to make a water do work. Let's make it simple. That in his mind, he invents just a water wheel. On an axle, of course, doing work. Now that, it's either that or what... I'd be inclined to just say daydream, just the automatic, the ceaseless running through the mind, which is not useless, though. But other than that, the reason I went to the trouble to point that out again, if it's not that, which how often are you involved with that? <clears throat> well, any of us. How often are you involved with the willful application of thought to one specific problem? And it, it's not a psychological problem. It's not a problem about you. I say again, what I'm calling a problem 
is something that is a challenge or is a situation that exists in the physical world. I also point out to you, which is might be worthy later of some additional thought, but I point out to you that that is why there is commonly so little interest and sometimes hostility toward such fields as mathematics, logic, physics, but math. Well, you all know, look, look at your response. Intelligent people. And vis-a-vis that, compared to the little interest, the little interest and sometimes hostility that is common toward mathematics, consider compared to that the common popularity of fiction, history, anthropology, psychology, religion. Mathematics is one thing, because mathematics requires the willful use of the mind. And you can't say that there's any passion involved. I mean, you'd be insane. I mean, you see the silliness that someone discovered how to solve a quadratic equation and then once it was shown to them, they understood it that they, you know, wet their pants, you know, left town or, you know, threw a party. You don't go, wow, two and two is four. And, you know, your whole life changes. I mean, what kind of feeling is it? And nobody really analyzes it. It is a man-made strictly, so an invention of the mind. But it's, it requires willful effort. Whereas reading and writing fiction, reading and writing history, Reading and writing about religion requires no willful effort. The people who write such things, they sit down, they get a piece of paper, a piece of papyrus, and a quill, and they commence to write. And one day God said, let there be man. Now the people read it and go, wow, that's great. Let there be man, and if he does write, he'll live after he dies. And, of course, everyone with feeling has something that they don't want to die. So, there you go. As I pointed out the other night, from one view, you can think, how in the world did religion, how did a fairy tale get so popular? Different fairy tales all around the world. How did that, there it is. There's feeling behind it. Look at the difference in the popularity of mathematics and religion. Or as I said, mathematics and anything. Because the rest of it, people have feeling about. If you're interested in history, the pictures, they're triggering your mind when you read about when such and such happened. When Cleopatra said, come here, you brute. When Hannibal came creeping over the Alps and says, who's going to clean up this mess? Who's going to feed these damn animals once we get there? Anyway, whatever triggers, whatever it triggers in you, you have feeling about. Reading case histories of psychology. If you're reading about man, and it triggers something in you, then it's triggering something having to do with feeling. There is no such thing as an abstract interest in history. There's no such thing as an impassioned interest in psychology any of the arts like I said you can just about limit it to math real hard science but math is just the prime example of the willful use 
of the mind to solve physical the problems in the physical world and to be able to do it without having to physically put your hands on the problem. That's why the mind can be so efficient. The rest of it, rather than just dismissing it, the rest of it is something else altogether different. And it's not weakness of the mind. It doesn't tell you anything, ultimately, to say, well, it's a form of sleep. It's just the mind just rattling on and on and on. And in fact, it distracts me so much that I lose my keys, as you said. I bump my head. I make wrong turns when I know where I'm driving. And I look up the billboard or I listen to something on the radio. The president will say something. I'll go, God darn it. And I'll miss my turn. God, that's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's being asleep. Okay, but it's something else also. And I say that there is a profitable different level to move down the stalk of investigation, to move down from thought down to feeling. Because you don't have those sleeping thoughts. You don't have thoughts that put you to sleep. You don't have thoughts that distract you unless they came from some feeling, some emotion. It's a simple fact. And it is useful once you sort of get a hold on it and realize that's true. And you can't sit there and say, well, maybe they are, but I don't like them. Well, see, now you're doing the same thing. You can't do that. <laughs> well, you can't do that, I say, in theory, and never see what's going on. You can certainly do that. Unless you think it'll drive you crazy, then be here next time and I'll really get into it. There is a real, I think possible for some of you, a real pretty quick nearby liberation. you got two days or a day to go ahead and ponder it yourself. But I'm telling you, from one quite real useful view, is to abandon all the ideas that you got to understand the mind. Okay, okay, I tried. Look to the bottom. Look right below the mind. It's feeling. There is no mind without feeling, other than, as I said, mathematics, if you get what I mean now. Other than that, to say that there are thoughts, is was my opening comment of my written part tonight, it's simply not true. Thoughts are not actual things. They are not things in the same way that a pain in your foot is a thing. Or that a hunger pain. That's a thing. Being cold. The sensation of being too cold or too hot. That is a thing. Thoughts are not a thing. Thoughts come from being cold. From having a foot or a stomach ache. That's where thoughts come from if they're not mathematics. The rest of them are measurements of how you feel. So tell me how you feel about that. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.